United States government does a lot to keep us safe. They also have a lot of secrets, which many people find unconstitutional. However, it's widely believed, and I 100% agree, that if we citizens knew everything, this would not only put us all in a lot of danger, there could most certainly be mass chaos. Someone suggested to me to speak today about three different operations, also sometimes known as projects, by the U.S. government to combat enemies and ensure the safety and continued success of the United States. Now, while I love listening to my listeners and their ideas, sometimes I know nothing about certain topics. Like, nothing. At all. So please bear with me as I learn with you about three different huge operations thought up by the United States government in the early 60s. And please forgive me ahead of time if I sound like an idiot and I misunderstand or misinterpret anything. And as always, if I do misunderstand or misinterpret anything, please let me know. You can always email me at kelveda at gmail.com. That's K-E-L-L-E-V-E-D-A at gmail.com. And explain it to me the way you would a small child. (laughs) But also, if you have any ideas for future episodes, I also would love to hear that from you. Again, you can email me at kelveda at gmail.com with any ideas that you have. I have recently heard from two different listeners about things that they would like to hear more of. And I've got to say, I love the input. I absolutely love it. Now, without any further introduction, let's get started. It may be random. It may at times be touching, heart-wrenching, or humorous. But these stories all have one thing in common. These are all things I find interesting. All right, so going in chronological order only makes sense, especially here. So let's start with Operation Mongoose, also known as the Cuban Project, which was introduced in November of 1961. The plan here was to carry out a series of extensive terrorist attacks to be carried out by the Central Intelligence Agency, better known by us today as the CIA, in Cuba. The idea for this operation was officially mentioned at a meeting in the White House on November 4th, 1961, and was originally approved by President Kennedy. The operation was to run through a U.S. covert operations and intelligence gathering station in Miami, Florida, which was apparently established in 1960. This was created after the famous yet failed Bay of Pigs invasion. This operation, however, Operation Mongoose, I mean, was a secret program to be used against Cuba with the plan to remove all communists from power. Removing communism was a very important focus in Kennedy's presidency. There was a document drawn up from the United States Department of State that detailed the plans to get rid of communism and cause a revolt in Cuba, overthrowing the government and Fidel Castro. All of this to be done by October of 1962. Okay, so the U.S. government wanted to see new government for Cuba so that the two countries could, quote-unquote, live in peace. Or in other words, the U.S. is doing what they do and bullying people to live just like we do. (laughs) Um, So that the government could be like, 
we can't coexist unless we exist the same way, basically. So the U.S. had been watching Fidel Castro's rise to power since the late 1940s. And as he rose to power, the United States grew concerned over his political policies. By the late 1950s, after gathering more and more intelligence on the leader, the United States determined that Castro was a communist. However, they could not officially deem him as such. But the United States also felt that Castro's closest confidants, Ernesto Che Guevara and Raul Castro Ruz, also showed traits of communism. And in 1959, General C.P. Cabell noticed that though Castro may not be communist himself, he was certainly allowing the Communist Party to influence Cuba. By late 1959, plans were being tossed around to overthrow Castro, and by early 1960, the U.S. had decided that Castro must go. However, because the U.S. did not want to ruffle feathers with the United Nations or deal with any consequences from them, this operation was of the utmost secrecy, so that there was room for, quote, plausible deniability. And this plausible deniability apparently then became the golden rule for all future operations. On March 17, 1960, the president signed off on the plans to carry this operation to term. A report written by General Lyman Kirkpatrick basically details that the president gave the military permission to take exiled Cubans to manage opposition programs, begin a, quote, propaganda offensive to create an intelligent network inside of Cuba and to create a paramilitary inside of Cuba to be trained and to lead the resistance against Castro and the government he created. Along with the opposition programs being put in place, the resistance also included radio broadcasts and leaflets to be passed around. This project cost approximately $4.4 million. $4.4 million. Led by Edward Lansdale at the Defense Department and William King Harvey of the CIA, Operation Mongoose had 32 tasks because there are 33 species of mongoose, apparently, which still doesn't totally make sense to me because 32 and 33 are not the same number, but I guess it's close enough. And by July of 1962, the operation still showed little progress. And by late August of 1962, the administration feared an open retaliation on the United States, causing the U.S. to be ordered by the president to stop Operation Mongoose. By the end of 1962, Operation Mongoose was no more. Operation Northwoods was introduced amidst Operation Mongoose and proposed a, quote, false flag operation against American citizens by the U.S. Department of Defense in 1962, targeting the U.S. military and U.S. civilians and blaming it on Cuba to justify war. Wow, <laughs> that's kind of manipulative and assy, isn't it? Just a little bit. So basically, a little more specifically, the plan was to assassinate Cuban immigrants, sink boats of Cuban refugees on the high seas coming to the U.S., 
hijack planes to be shot down, or at least to give the impression of them being shot down, blowing up a United States ship, and orchestrating violent terrorist attacks in some U.S. cities. Oh my God. <laughs> that was all to be done by the U.S., by the way, if you're just in case you missed that before. This all was, thankfully, rejected by John F. Kennedy. Okay, the whole point of this plan was to put the U.S. in a position to look as though we were suffering defensible grievances from a rash and irresponsible Cuban government and to establish the international image or belief of the threat that Cuba was to the Western world. This plan doesn't sound very communist at all, does it? I mean, if their whole idea was to manipulate millions of people into hating Cuba for being manipulative and overbearing, they were going to show that by being manipulative and overbearing? WTF, man. So apparently, the former mentioned Operation Mongoose had many similar plans at first. The memorandum outlined a plan called Operation Bingo, which was a false flag operation to create an incident, which has the appearance of an attack on the U.S. facilities in Cuba, thus providing an excuse for use of military might to overthrow the Cuban government. Also included was Operation Dirty Trick, another false flag program to use to blame Castro if the 1962 flight carrying John Glenn had crashed. I'm sorry, I don't know why this is so funny to me. I think it's because they made like a plan. Okay, sorry, side note. They made a plan that if this space mission failed and John Glenn died in some fiery crash, that they were going to blame it on Cuba. Okay. It stated, quote, the objective is to provide irrevocable proof that should the Mercury manned orbit flight fail, the fault lies with the communists, mainly Cuba. <laughs> oh my gosh. It continues to say, quote, again, this to be accomplished by manufacturing various pieces of evidence which would prove electronic interference on the part of the Cubans. Oh, dear Lord. Well, General Lemnitzer lost his job, and even after that, the U.S. Department of Defense still planned these really poorly thought-up false flag programs well into the year of 1963. Lemnitzer, who was the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staffs, was removed by President Kennedy after the presentation of Operation Northwoods. He did later become the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, though, in January of 1963. Not sure how that happened, but, you know, weirder things have happened. The John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act of 1992, long name, caused many private documents to become declassified and... Among those four million documents was Operation Northwoods. But it wouldn't be for another nine years, so in case you can't do the math, that's 2001, 
until a book came out that was titled Body of Secrets, and that was written by James Bamford. The public knowledge then of Operation Northwoods would be raised. Welcome back to this week's episode of the podcast, Things I Find Interesting. I'm your host, Calveda, coming to you from the great state of South Dakota, where it's never a good idea to style your hair and expect it to stay that way as soon as you step outside. This is part two of your episode, so let's get rolling, shall we? Project Mockingbird was a wiretapping operation initiated by President John F. Kennedy to identify the sources of government leaks by eavesdropping on the conversations or communications of journalists. It was conducted between March 12, 1963 to June 15, 1963, and targeted two Washington-based newsmen who, at the time, were publishing news articles and quoting the CIA and other agencies, but also including top-secret intelligence and special intelligence. In October of 2001, transcripts of secretly recorded conversations that took place in the Oval Office were published by the Miller Center of Public Affairs. These conversations took place in the summer of 1962 when President Kennedy, along with the CIA, spied on a national security reporter from the New York Times by the name of Hanson Baldwin, who had angered the president through an article published in July of 1962 that offered classified information in print to readers of the New York Times. All of this info was from a recent intelligence estimate, which included a comparison between the United States and the Soviet Union's nuclear arsenals. It also spoke of the Soviets' efforts to guard their missile sites. In 1975, the CIA did investigations and found that there were two instances where three newsmen were tapped in order to find leaks of classified information. However, the CIA wrote that the, that the White House was pressuring them to do these wiretaps because the FBI would not, and that that's not usually something that the CIA does, and they would not again wiretap the media just to find out where the leaked information was coming from. I'm assuming that they say this because either A, they really don't agree with it, or B, they got caught and needed to save face by blaming a dead guy. Here's my thought on that. Why was the FBI allowed to be like, no, we're not doing that, but the CIA, who from what has always seemed to be presented to us, are maybe a little more powerful than the FBI, couldn't say no. I find that kind of fishy. Peishi. Seriously, though, I have also heard declassified CIA things, and they aren't always as clean as a whistle like they like to make themselves out to be, so I don't really know a lot about this, but I do know that. I think that they're, I think that they're playing the victim here. Then, in 2009, the Assistant General Counsel of the Office of General Counsel within the CIA wrote a law review. In it, he mentioned that the Operation Mockingbird was most likely not legal, as it was done to Americans 
on American soil. That's me paraphrasing. Apparently, the CIA can get the attorney general's approval if it's to be done to find foreign leaks, but not leaks within the United States. The Rockefeller Commission also agreed on that. So there you have it. Those were some of the operations that were done by our military here in the U.S. Kind of interesting. Sadly, not totally surprising that some of it is totally crooked or downright illegal. And because these operations make me feel kind of ashamed of my government, and since we have some time left, I say we keep the ball rolling and continue with the shit fest. I wanted to share some not-so-great American moments. In fact, these were actual tragedies. And sadly, the perpetrators of these happenings were either not found guilty or didn't feel that they did anything wrong. But still... I think they're worth sharing because if we don't talk about them, they'll be forgotten and eventually repeated. And nobody wants that. Side note, I found a wonderful article that lists all of these. And so I am paraphrasing the events. I also consulted other sources so as not to just believe everything I read in one spot. Here we go. All right, here we go. Number one. On March 16, 1968, U.S. soldiers in the Charlie Company killed somewhere around 567 South Vietnamese civilians, including women and children, in what is now known as the My Lai Massacre. The public learned of this massacre in November of 1969, and of course this caused a lot of controversy. The platoon commander was originally given a life sentence, which was later reduced by President Nixon to just house arrest and was released around three and a half years later. Then 26 other soldiers were tried in military court, but none were convicted. Ugh. Okay, that's upsetting. All right, number two. August 28, 1955, Emmett Lou Till was just 14 years old when he was kidnapped and lynched after being accused of offending a white woman at a grocery store. The woman later recanted parts of her story during the trial out of guilt, but the judge decided that that was inadmissible. Sadly, we are still dealing with this type of racist bullshit in our country in 2022. In May of 2020, another death of a man of color made headlines as George Floyd was arrested and killed by police officers outside of a market in Minnesota due to an illegal hold just to put cuffs on George. Neither of these instances should have ended this way, and none of the other countless incidences where people of color are killed just for walking at night or sleeping in their own bed or going for a run because they like to stay in shape should have ended that way either. America needs to do better. Number three, November 10th, 1898. Wilmington, North Carolina was the home of the only incident in history of the United States that saw a time when the government was overthrown in a coup done by white supremacists. The city had a large black and multiracial government, 
which in my opinion is really awesome, especially for the time that this took place. However, some people did not think that this was very awesome and they promoted false claims of black violence, which of course struck a chord with white people's biggest fears at the time. And by election day, the supremacists took over the government by force and declared it illegal for any person of color to be in office. When they tried to defend themselves, 2,000 blacks were driven out of the city and 60 were killed, bringing their population down from 56% to just 18%. This is making me sick to my stomach. Number four. 1779 brought an outbreak of smallpox to the Native Americans, which proved to facilitate tragic losses among their tribes. The epidemic in Mexico City soon traveled into New Mexico and caused a disgusting amount of deaths. This pandemic took out nearly 11,000 Native Americans in the western part of the U.S., bringing their population down from 37,000 to 26,000. Then add in the brutality of the boarding schools. It's so sickening that anybody could do to the Native Americans and the blacks the things that they have done in our country. And this is why Make America Great Again really scares me because when was America great? You know? Um, when we were killing thousands of Native Americans, when we were killing and driving out and isolating people of color, when we were bringing people over from Asia to build our railroads so that we could walk around on horses and yell at them and make them work in the burning heat. Like, when were we a great country? Sure, maybe we had money. Sure, maybe we had like a status to uphold, but we have always kind of been assholes. That's just my humble opinion. Okay, five. March 3rd, 1873. Anthony Comstock was a salesman from Connecticut who was highly offended by contraception ads for women. He found this obscene and lobbied until Congress passed the Comstock Act, which was officially, quote, an act for the suppression of trade in and circulation of obscene literature and articles for immoral use. Basically saying that women shouldn't be able to have access to information about birth control and should not be allowed to, again, quote, limit their fertility. In other words, though, (laughs) he didn't want immigrants to outnumber U.S.-born children. Yep, sounds like America to me. Old white men get to tell women what to do with their bodies, even though they don't totally understand yet what our bodies actually do, and that the way a woman's body works is not really obscene at all. In fact, it's less obscene than receiving dick pics when you didn't even ask for them. It's less obscene than politicians sleeping with children. Because that's what they are. They're not underage girls. They're girls. 
they're girls. They're not women, they're girls. They're little kids. But hey, what do I know? I'm not even allowed to make choices for my own body without the consent of a male. And even in some states, still in 2022, it's 2022, like we said earlier, not 1873, we still are not allowed to make choices for ourselves, for our bodies, even with a male's consent, unless that male is in charge of the entire freaking state. Okay, number six. On November 29th, 1864, a regiment of Colorado volunteer cavalrymen attacked an encampment of Cheyenne and Arapaho Native Americans at Sand Creek. That's 180 miles southeast of Denver. They killed about 200 people, mostly women and children. Are we seeing a trend here? John Shivington, the pistol-packing minister who led the assault, described it as a glorious union against, quote, red rebels, offensive, who had sided with the Confederacy. But rumors of atrocities soon surfaced and led the congressional inquiries that cast the raid as a shameful slaughter of pacified Indians. Okay, in parentheses, I'm going to say actually they're called Native Americans or Natives. Captain Silas Sewell testified that troops shot, scalped, and mutilated, oh gosh, non-combatants. Two months later, he was murdered in Denver. For years, Colorado memorialized the massacre as a battle and honored the soldiers as heroes. Oh, imagine that. Tribal and white scholars, activists, and descendants finally overturned the narrative of that story in the 1990s. The lesson of Sand Creek is that life matters only when truth matters. The tragedy also reminds us of the courage of history's whistleblowers and of our responsibility to carry on their work. I want to go back to that life matters only when truth matters because... That kind of reminds me of Black Lives Matter. You know, all lives don't matter until all lives do matter. Seven. In 1969, the Black Panther Party's Free Breakfast for Children program fed tens of thousands of hungry kids in cities across the United States. But fearing the Panthers' growing popularity... The FBI and local police tried to stamp the program out. Of course, they did. In Baltimore, police raided the breakfast with guns drawn. In Chicago, police broke into the church that hosted the breakfast at night and smashed and urinated on the food. In Harlem, the police started rumors that the food was poisoned. 
The FBI won the battle in some places because parents became afraid to send their kids to the breakfast. Of course! Of course they would be! In other places, the, tra the tactic backfired as the community claimed the Panthers as their own. In future years, the Panthers renamed and expanded their community-based survival programs, and ironically, the USDA used the breakfast program as a model for a federal school breakfast program, which they still have today, in case you didn't know that. The Black Panther Party was explicitly militant, but it also had a visionary program of mutual aid. The FBI did not want people to understand that nuance, but we can only reckon with our history if we do, Looking at today's movement for black lives, it's equally important not to get lost in rhetoric and to look instead at what activists are actually doing with their communities. Yes, this is what I'm saying. All right, number eight, the 1911 Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire was one of the worst U.S. industrial disasters but we should consider it alongside other workplace catastrophe. On September 3rd, 1991, a fire in the Imperial Foods chicken processing plant in Hamlet, North Carolina, killed 25 workers and injured 56 who were trapped behind intentionally locked fire doors. An eerie echo of the conditions that led the 146 deaths in New York City in 1911. Most victims of the Hamlet fire were women, and many were African-American. Oh, jeez. Most were single mothers, leaving over 50 children orphaned. Though the Triangle Shirtwaist incident was followed by a wave of labor protection laws, as Bryant Simon explains in the Hamlet fire, by 1991, national deregulation, anti-unionization, lax enforcement of safety standards, and systematic racism created the conditions for another devastating event. Today, when the most precarious labor continues to fall disproportionately on women of color, and when the government has pushed a host of deregulation measures that have weakened protections for workers, it is vital to reprioritize the regulations that protect workers' pay, safety, rights to organize. Only then will we be able to live up to the words of one Hamlet fire survivor. Putting money before life will never happen again. Number nine, the 1930s. As unemployment rose to record levels during the Great Depression, Mexican migrants and Mexican Americans were simultaneously blamed for taking jobs from US citizens and paradoxically, for living off of public welfare. Hmm, that sounds familiar. Don't we still hear that today about immigrants? In response, immigration officials started deportation campaigns to rid the country of unauthorized migrants, while those who could not be deported because they were legal residents or citizens were pressured to leave, quote-unquote, voluntarily. Basically, they're being voluntold to go away. Nice. With the support of the Mexican government, County officials in the United States often sponsored trains to return ethnic Mexicans to the border. The number of repatriated Mexicans is hard to know, but estimates range from at least 350,000 to as high as 2 million 
out of which 60% are believed to have been American citizens. Oh my God. Most of them were children. However, only a few years after the final episode of repatriation, in 1939 to 1940, U.S. officials were desperate to bring Mexican workers back. Of course, because they're actually good workers and they don't bitch. <sighs> to replace American citizens who had gone to fight in uh, World War II. Okay, that makes sense too, but also I think partly it's because they're good workers. Um, the repatriation campaigns... Uh, show us that the problems for which migrants are often blamed are not solved by their deportation. This moment is a reminder of the importance of not seeing those who live among us as others, who can be welcomed or shunned based on only the need for their work. Ugh. All right, and here's the big one, number 10. May 18th. 1896, Plessy versus Ferguson. In some ways, the Supreme Court's 1896 decision in Plessy versus Ferguson, which upheld Louisiana's statute mandating segregation in all public facilities, was the nail in the coffin. Since 1876, the courts and Congress had steadily eroded the Reconstruction Amendment's promises to African Americans, suffrage, equal protection of the law, and due process before the law. But the Plessy opinion and its embrace of separate but equal let African Americans know once and for all that despite the Constitution's guarantees, their fundamental rights would not be protected. Plessy versus Ferguson was not overturned until 1954 and only because of decades of dedicated work by civil rights attorneys and organizers. From Plessy, we know that the letter of the law and even the constitution is insufficient and potentially even meaningless if it was not applied fairly or consistently. We also know that some laws like the Louisiana segregation statute contravene basic principles of the Constitution. Democracy requires that we do more than rely upon or simply follow the law. We have to insist upon virtuous laws and passionately reject oppressive ones. History teaches us that if we sit idly by, even the most noble laws can be distorted by bigotry. And bigoted laws, left unchecked, can lead to immense suffering. Thank you for listening. This has been Things I Find Interesting. I'm your host, Calveda. Until next time. Mm-hmm.